Sometimes it seems like conflict is just unavoidable. Parents, if you have kids, you know that to be the case. There are certain situations where you can just feel there's, there's going to be conflict. Whether it's whose turn to sit where on road trip or whose turn it is to do the dishes, whatever the situation may be, you know that there will just be conflict. For some of you, there was conflict getting out the door this morning in the absence of your wife. And there are moments that you can, again, you can see the conflict coming. You can feel the temperature rising in the room. In our passage this morning, we have seen conflict that has come to a boil. This conflict is between the Jews and the Gentiles, more specifically between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And this conflict has been brewing for quite some time in the book of Acts. We began to see it all the way back in Acts chapter 6, when the Hellenists, the the Greek-speaking Jews, accused the Hebrew-speaking Jews of neglecting them in the food distribution. And then in Acts chapter 11, Peter is confronted by the Jews for eating with Cornelius and his household, for having table fellowship with a Gentile. So we've been seeing this conflict that's simmering. Well, it has come to a boil in Acts chapter 15. In this passage, we see at least three things. We see first the debate, which is how will you be saved? How will the Gentiles be saved? And then you see the decision. The council decides that you will be saved by faith alone. Gentiles are saved by faith alone. And then finally, there is the decree that the council issues. And their decree is that you are to consider others more important than yourself. So first, the debate. The debate in Acts chapter 15 is over salvation. How will you be saved? The instigators of the debate were the men who came from Judea to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were teaching. Again, uh, just to refresh your memories, Antioch is the first Gentile church that we have seen in Acts. And so men who come from Judea, that is, they come from the area surrounding Jerusalem, presumably Jews have come to Antioch, to this Gentile church, And they begin telling these Gentile Christians that if they really want to be saved, well, then they'll get circumcised and then they'll obey the law of Moses. You see that clearly in verse 1 and verse 5. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then again, that's repeated in verse 5. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Their answer to the question, how will the Gentiles be saved? How will you be saved? Is by believing in Jesus and by getting circumcised and obeying the law of Moses. Their logic was basically that the Jews were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. And to the Jews, God had promised a Messiah who is Jesus. So you need to believe in the Messiah 
But you also need to conform yourself to the Jewish teachings. You need circumcision and you need to obey the Mosaic law. So believe in Jesus. Yes, that's fine, but that's not enough. You also must get circumcised and then obey the law. In our language, we would say their theology is faith plus works equals salvation. That's the answer to, their question, to the question, how will you be saved? Luke tells us that these teachers were met with fierce opposition by Paul and Barnabas. And here Luke does not describe in detail what exactly Paul said in debate with them. But in the book of Galatians, Paul picks up this exact issue. And Paul's conclusion in Galatians chapter 5, Paul writes this. I, Paul, testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. So you've got these men of Judea on one side and then you've got Paul on the other side. The men of Judea are arguing that it's faith and keeping the law of Moses. And Paul's on this side saying it's faith and faith alone. Moreover, if you want to hold to circumcision, well, then you bind yourself to the whole law. And you are separated from Christ in that instance. And so these two positions, faith plus good works and faith alone is what sets the table for the council at Jerusalem. This is the the issue of the debate. How will you be saved? These two claims, these two sides, these two camps, they're competing and they're mutually exclusive. You can't hold both. Both of these can't be true. To, to try and uphold faith and good works as the foundation, as the basis of your salvation is like trying to hold on to a candle while lighting both ends of it. You light one end, that's the, that's the faith end, and then you light the other end, that's the good works end, and then you hold on to the middle thinking that you can do both. Eventually the candle's going to burn up, it'll burn your hand, the candle will be gone, and you're left with nothing but pain. That's what Paul is arguing in Galatians 5. That's the significance of what is at stake here. Is it can't be both. It must be faith and works or faith alone. And this pull to make salvation dependent on our own effort is so appealing because it's the same lie that Adam and Eve believed in the garden. The serpent told Eve in the garden that when they ate of the tree that God said not to eat, God said, for for the day that you eat of this, you will surely die. The serpent told Eve, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You won't die. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice what Satan says back in the garden. He says you. He appeals to them as individuals. And their personalities. And the unique way that they're wired. He says you. 
Not someone else, but you will be like God. He appeals to their personal identity and their own effort. You will be like God. And so Satan is telling Adam and Eve in the garden, don't trust God. Trust yourself. Trust yourself. Trust your way. Don't trust God's way. Believe in yourself. You don't have to believe in God alone. You can believe in yourself. Because of our sinful hearts, we crave the glory that is only due to God. The, debate, the danger of this debate in Acts 15 is not that we're on the side of Paul and Barnabas, but by nature we're on the side of the men of Judea. We're the ones that are looking for another way to add something that we can contribute to the work of Jesus. And so this debate over how will you be saved is it's not relegated to Bible times in Acts chapter 15, but it's one that's alive and well even today. How will you be saved? The Jerusalem Council, it stands almost at the very center of the book of Acts. And as it stands at the center of the book of Acts, we find ourselves in the middle of a shift from how God has related to his people in the Old Testament and how he's relating to them in light of the work of Christ. And so the, in the middle of this shift, the question, what about the Gentiles? What about you? What about me? How will we be saved could no longer be pushed to the side. To push to the side. A decision had to be made Is faith all that's required? Or must the Gentiles get circumcised and obey the law of Moses in order to truly be saved? And so that's the second thing we see, the decision of the council. The decision is you will be saved by faith alone. You can see the council... Uh, takes place. The decision of the council is found in verses 7 through 21. And Luke tells us that there was much debate here at this council. Both sides, the men of Judea and Paul and Barnabas, both sides had stated their case. And Luke tells us that there are at least three responses. One from Peter, one from Paul and Barnabas, and one from James. Now these Responses from Peter, Paul, and James vary slightly, but they all agree in substance that the Gentiles will be saved by faith alone. The Gentiles, just like the Jews, will be saved by faith alone. So first, Peter's response in verses 7 through 11. And Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
So Peter goes back to Acts chapter 10 and recalls the vision that God gave to him on the rooftop. And the sheet came down, covered the earth, and God told Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, by no means, Lord, I've, I've never eaten anything unclean. God said, don't call that unclean, which I have called clean. So the men from Cornelius' household come to Peter, and Peter goes to Cornelius' household. Peter preaches the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes to Cornelius and his household. And Peter says, you remember that that was God's decision. It wasn't our decision. God made the choice to do that. And just as the Jews in Jerusalem received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, so the Gentiles in Cornelius' household received the Holy Spirit in a miraculous way. God didn't make a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. In fact, He cleansed their hearts by faith. The author of Hebrews tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Friends, faith is not blindly jumping off a cliff and hoping that maybe, possibly, somehow, God might just catch you. That's not faith. Faith is trust in the promise of God to save you because you trust in the character of the one who makes the promise. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And so to have your heart cleansed by faith is to hear the gospel. It's to hear that Jesus has lived a sinless life, the life that you were supposed to live, and that he died an unjust death, the death that you justly deserved. And he paid the penalty that you were supposed to pay, but you couldn't pay. And on the third day, he was raised to new life, securing new life for those who would believe in him. Faith is hearing that message and saying, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe that what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient to cover my sins. You've promised to save anyone who calls on your name. And I'm calling on your name, Lord, because you've promised and you are true to your word. And so Peter says with confidence, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And this is the reason why salvation must be by faith alone and not by faith in addition to the good works that you perform. When you stand before God on judgment day, you will be judged on the basis of works. God's standard is perfection. That's His measuring stick. He can't lower it or He would not be God. His standard is perfection. And you will be called to give an account of how you measure up. And only perfect obedience will get you into heaven. Not almost perfect obedience, but perfect obedience. And so you will either be measured by your own works or you'll be measured by Jesus' works. Jesus is the only one who has obeyed the law of God perfectly. God gave evidence to that by raising him from the dead. 
So this is why Peter says that it is through the grace of the Lord Jesus that you will be saved. Salvation must be by faith alone. Because only Jesus has satisfied God's requirements. And so then Paul, after Peter gets done speaking, Paul gets up and he explains the wonders, the the works, the miracles that God was doing among the Gentiles on their first missionary journey as giving evidence to the fact that God was in fact bringing the Gentiles to faith in Christ. And then finally James gets up to speak. And James became an important leader in the church in Jerusalem we see that in Acts 12 when Peter was imprisoned and then God sent his angel in the middle of the night, freed Peter. Peter came to the house of Mary and uh, began to relate to the disciples gathered there that were praying for him all that God had done. And Peter said, and tell this to James. And then Peter kind of went off the scene. Well, presumably then James became an important disciple an important leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he likely would have represented the most conservative voice in the Jerusalem council. And yet, he agrees with Peter and Paul that salvation is by faith alone. So James quotes from the prophet Amos. He says in verse 16, quoting the prophet, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So Amos was prophesying he was looking forward to a future day when God would rebuild the tent of David that had fallen when God would restore David's kingdom and on that future day of restoration Amos says that the remnant of mankind will seek the Lord that the Gentiles who are called by name by God will praise him James is looking back to this prophecy and he's saying that we already know that Jesus is the one who sits on David's throne. Jesus is the one who fulfilled even the prophecies that David himself wrote. Jesus is the only one who hasn't seen corruption, hasn't seen decay. So we know that he is David's son. So we know that God has reestablished David's kingdom So it's only natural that we expect Gentiles then to call on the name of the Lord and be saved because that's exactly what God said would happen. They're coming to God through faith in Jesus. And that last part is important. They're coming to God through faith in Jesus. Faith is only the instrument that God has chosen for people to receive salvation. So as we think about how you will be saved and being saved by faith alone, we need to clarify that a bit. Faith is only the instrument that people receive salvation. Christ is our salvation. 
Faith is the instrument, but Christ is our salvation. Faith is like a door by which we receive Christ or like a key that opens the door. The point is that faith is not salvation. Christ is our salvation. Faith is how we receive Christ. When a young man fancies a lady and decides that he wants to marry her, he seeks her hand in marriage. That's his real desire. He says, this is the one that I I can't live without. I, I must live all my days with her. That's his desire. But in order to get there, he must go through engagement. Engagement is not the goal. Engagement is not really what he wants. Engagement is an instrument that gets him to the object that he really wants, to be married to his bride. No man ever gets engaged for engagement's sake. And faith for faith's sake is nothing. Marriage is the object of engagement, so Christ is the object of Christian faith. So how comforting is it to hear that it's not your faith that saves you, but the object of your faith. Christ is the object of saving faith. He is the one who saves. Charles Spurgeon is usually helpful, and he's helpful here on this point when he says, Remember, therefore, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, although that is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, Spurgeon says, do not look so much to your hand with which you are grasping Christ as to Christ. Do not look to your hope, but to Jesus, the source of your hope. Do not look to your faith, but look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. We will never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our deeds, our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. Faith is the instrument that we receive Christ. And it is faith alone that brings us salvation because it is faith alone that brings us Christ. So God witnessed to the Gentiles that they had in fact received salvation by faith alone, by giving them the Holy Spirit, by performing miracles, and by declaring in His Word that that would in fact happen. The debate was over, the decision was made, and now the council issued their decree. And so their decree was that you are to consider others first. You see that through verses 22 and 35. So James finishes his speech at the council by offering a proposal. His proposal is that they should not trouble the Gentiles who are turning to God, but they should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. So verse 22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church 
to, tru- to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. So James offers this proposal. The church says, we think this is good. And so they prepare to send a letter to the churches in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, letting them know the decision that the council had made, but also giving them the decree that James had proposed. And so this letter makes clear that they're not placing further burdens on the Gentiles. The church does not think that it is charting some kind of new course, but rather that it's following the lead of the Holy Spirit. But the letter does say that they are to abstain from certain things. They're not required to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses in order to be saved. They're saved by faith alone, but they give a decree. You're to abstain from four things. Some take these four things and kind of parse them out and treat them individually and and go back to the Old Testament and see what, what the Old Testament says about these things. I think instead it's a bit better to see them as four things all pointing towards one major thing. So these four items that the Gentiles are supposed to abstain from actually, I think, point to the pagan festivals that would have taken place at the pagan temples. Again, we saw last week in Acts chapter 14 when Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra and they're preaching the gospel and they heal the man. The city then thinks that they're gods. They call, they call Paul Hermes, they call Barnabas Zeus and they get the, the temple priest to come out and bring garments and they're going to sacrifice to them. It, the whole town's involved in this festival. And that was common in the ancient world. And these kinds of festivals are not the kind of festivals that Frodo Baggins would throw in the Shire. This is not the kind of festival that you want to invite your mother-in-law to. These were notorious festivals. So the four things that James says that the Gentiles are to abstain from could all be found at these festivals and these pagan temples. And so the council agrees. They decree that the Gentiles are to abstain from these things because they no longer worship those idols. They worship the one true living God through Jesus. They have been bought with a price. Their life is no longer their own. So they're called to abandon that idolatry. But they're also called to abstain from those activities for the sake of their Jewish brothers and sisters. Look at verse 21. This is James speaking. This is the last thing he says at the council. Verse 21. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. James is well aware that There are Jews in virtually every city that there are Gentiles. And as the gospel is spreading out, as Gentiles are coming to faith, there will be Jews who also are coming to faith. And so the issue here in the council in Acts 15 is not one that will go away quietly or easily. 
So James's proposal is that the Gentiles not exercise their freedom in Christ in such a way that would bring harm or cause the Jewish Christians to stumble. Just as the council is clear, the Jewish Christians are not to impose anything upon the Gentile Christians because they have genuine freedom in Christ through faith. So the Gentiles treat their brothers with respect, with humility. They live a life of grace towards their Jewish brothers and sisters. And so their decree at the council is a decree to consider others more important than yourself, is to consider others first. Paul illustrates this reality better than anyone else, perhaps. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. For the sake of the gospel, Paul is willing to do whatever it takes to call those to faith in Christ and to promote the unity of his church. Paul's focus is to leverage his freedom in Christ for the glory of God and the good of others. And so your faith in Christ causes you to be concerned and to consider others first. And this runs totally counter to what our culture says today. I don't want to overstate it, but perhaps if we're not the most individualistic culture in the history of the world, we are at least in the running for that. Any attempt to declare someone's self-expression of themselves is seen as wrong, oppressive, and hateful. The cry of the cultural moment is that nothing can stand in your way from exercising your rights as an individual. And if someone would have the audacity to get in front of you and call you to lay down your rights, well then, we reject that person, we shun them, we cancel them. Our culture is one that is infatuated with individualistic self-expression. But the gospel demands another way. Christianity gives a better path. Christ himself did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped or exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. So those who follow Christ are called to consider the interest of others more important than our own. If clinging to our rights causes our brother or sister to stumble... 
we ought to consider laying down that right for the sake of our brother or sister. After all, our kingdom is a heavenly one, not an earthly one. And so as we seek to live in community, as we seek to grow together in Christ, if we become aware of things that we know are causing a brother or sister to stumble, we're going to labor to avoid doing that in order to care for our brother or sister. And notice that when the Gentiles in Antioch heard the decree of the council, they, they rejoiced. They didn't receive this instruction to abstain from their, the pagan practices of the, of the temple around them. They didn't receive that as this unbearable law or another yoke that was being put upon them. They rejoiced. They were saved by faith alone and faith now enabled them to be able to live in love of God and love of neighbor. And so the debate that happened at the council is one that is still ongoing. The question still stands, how will you be saved? There are competing answers to that question. But the Bible and Christianity is clear. You will only be saved by faith alone. The decision made at the council still stands. It's only through grace by faith in Christ. Christ alone is the one who lived to God's perfect standard. And the decree of the council still stands. Abstain from idolatry and consider others more important than yourselves. May God help us to be a people who live by faith and faith alone. May we consider it a joy and a privilege to give up whatever we must give up in order to see our brothers and sisters built up. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you care about us. We thank you that you care about your church. Father, we thank you that you have spoken so clearly on matters so important. Father, help us to be a people who live by faith. God, help us to be a people who don't put unnecessary stumbling blocks in front of our brothers and sisters or to the world around us. Father, help us to be more like Christ who modeled this tension perfectly. And Lord, give us grace with one another as we journey to that end. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.